We're going to go ahead and get started. I always hate to break it up, but um, you can, you know, you can stay late and talk, or you can come early and go outside and smoke with the with some of our, you know, greeting crew out front. I'm just kidding. Don't don't start smoking. It's Lent. Um, supposed to be giving up those bad habits. Um, okay, so I want to start this morning with a confession, and it's kind of embarrassing, so you're going to have to have some grace with me, because it's not easy to admit this kind of thing publicly, but I have this problem where I actually like the TV show The Family Guy. It's just, I know, I know, it's wrong. Um, there is no redeeming quality to this show. It is crass and crude and vulgar and insensitive, and I love it. Not in spite of those things, but I fear because of those things. <laughs> I mean, if it was all nice and polite and refined and careful, I would never watch it. I'm just saying that's the truth. And neither would, th there wouldn't be 20 seasons of this show and 383 episodes. So I can't be alone in the secret shame. Is there anybody else? I, f I thought it would be only guys, it's girls too. This makes me feel so much better about myself. <laughs> the genius, if you can call it that, of this show is that it's satire, right? They use humor to sort of trick the audience into seeing things about ourselves we don't want to see. And the creator, this guy named Seth MacFarlane, has made a career out of this. He uses humor to confront his audience with their own weirdness and the hidden aspects of our lives and our cultural discourse that are kind of unthinkable to us. They're invisible, they're unconsidered, and maybe not all that healthy. And so he, he jokes about things that aren't that funny, and you're laughing, and then you're going, why am I laughing? That's terrible. And, and he sort of pushes our normal behaviors to the logical extremes and, and confronts us then with our hidden agendas and blind spots and assumptions. And he's kind of trying to push back on the implications of our unexamined like behaviors and attitudes. And strictly speaking, this is, in a, like in a theological sense, this is the role of the prophet. That's what they do. Prophets force us to have these uncomfortable conversations in a public forum. He also makes these digital shorts. And there's one that he, he made about um, the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote that is too terrible to show you, even though it's only like two minutes long. But the premise of this is that, you know, Wiley Coyote is for years, decades, chasing the Roadrunner with these elaborate plans that conveniently never work. And then one day, by sheer accident, it actually works. And he stumbles and releases it too early, and the rock actually falls on the Roadrunner. You can see it's about to get him. I didn't show you the next frame because... Um, it's, it's wrong. Um, but, but the rock actually falls on the roadrunner and kills him. And then you realize, you, you don't really think about why this coyote is chasing the roadrunner at all. So McFarland shows you. The next thing he does is he cooks and eats the roadrunner for dinner. I told you this is wrong. Um, and, and he's bragging to his buddy about this whole thing, about how he feels so satisfied in this. And his, his friend's like, wow, okay, so what are you going to do now? And the coyote was not ready for this question. Um, he's like, well, I don't know. I never really thought about what I would do if I caught him. I'm chasing this bird for 20 years, and I'm not really trained to do anything else. He says, I swear that my life get away from me. And 
And then a few days later, the, the leftovers are all gone. He, he's picked through all of it. And he's sitting there going, uh-oh, something, something might be wrong. And, and then full-on depression sets in. He's like drinking heavily, <laughs> stopped taking care of himself. He's watching TV all night long. You can see the little Roadrunner skull on top of the TV. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be showing. I should not be showing you this. And then he gets a job waiting tables that he's terrible at. He yells at the customers and he gets fired. And finally, he hits rock bottom, decides to end it all, and um, has a plan and everything. Then at the, at the last minute, he has this epiphany and unties himself from his little suicide machine here. And... Then they show him at this diner with one of his coyote buddies, and, and he tells them, I finally figured out what I want to do with the rest of my life here. And his buddy's like, that's, that's great, man. I'm really happy for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, thanks, man. And then he says, so if you have about 45 minutes, I'd like to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and then the look on his buddy's face speaks just volumes about. So this guy, it's kind of rough on Christians. <laughs> and, but you get it, right? And this is how a lot of people view Christianity. Like Christians are just a bunch of people who can't handle the pain and ambiguity of life. And so they turn to religion to magically solve all their problems. And then they try to sell everybody else on it, kind of like Amway. And there's probably more truth to this than we would like to admit. Many people do kind of try to Jesus juke the pain of life, treat God like a magic wand or a cheat code that makes our lives work out or at least, you know, help us avoid the existential angst of life, although there's no avoiding the existential angst and everything doesn't work out. In fact, Jesus never promised that it would. And so if we reduce um, Christianity to that, we sort of cheapen the experience. We leave it open to this kind of critique. Now, if I've done my job well, that was at least a little bit uncomfortable to listen to. Um, especially the, the ending part where the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys and your guys get like put on the microscope. Um, and, and hopefully that wasn't the kind of story that you expected to hear when you showed up at church this morning. Um, because although Jesus did not make animated sitcoms, he did tell these stories called parables that did a very similar thing. They weren't satire, but they were very close. And they were often familiar stories like this with familiar characters, but with this surprise twist ending that was, was frankly offensive and insulting to the religious folks around him. And so they, they kind of force people to have an uncomfortable conversation in a public forum, because that's what prophets do. And this means that when we read the, the parables, we make a huge mistake a lot of times by reducing them to these kind of quaint moral stories about how God can make our lives turn out the way we want, or magically give us meaning, or about how we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, so join the good guys while you still can, that kind of stuff. When Jesus told parables, he wasn't selling Amway. He wasn't like um, running a self-help seminar. He was unsettling his listeners, trying to bother them and disturb their peace and shake them awake. The parables sort of broke open their established norms and narratives and messed with them. 
either by claiming something impossible or scandalous or by just turning the whole story on its head upside down in a way that critiqued the good guys and made the bad guys the heroes. It wasn't, it wasn't Hallmark Channel storytelling. This was the family guy. I mean, he wasn't crude and vulgar, but he was offensive and provocative to the religious folks, especially. He exposed the brokenness to which they were blind and would shake them awake to their own lives and their hidden agendas and blind spots and challenge their views of God and self and other and the world. And he didn't pull his punches. He told these parables, usually in such a way that when he was finished, he left his listeners with this extremely uncomfortable, unresolved tension. And so I'm hoping we can try to tell the story in a way that we let this happen to us today. The prodigal son um, is told, it's a story that's told in response to this critique the Pharisees had leveled against Jesus. They were wondering why he shares meals with tax collectors and, and sinners. This wasn't done. These guys were excluded from the community of the faithful. And to answer this, he tells them three stories. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. The prodigal is the, the lost son. It's the last one. It's the longest, and it kind of interprets all three of them. And we know this. We know the story, right? It's the rebellious child of a wealthy father who stands to receive a sizable inheritance, but an inheritance can't be had until the father is dead. But this son has the gall to ask for it early, which was tantamount to saying, I wish that you were dead. And it's insulting and hurtful and actually goes against explicit rabbinic law. Um, and to the surprise of the listeners, the father does it. Just gives him his inheritance. Usually kind of gloss over that part, but it's worth asking why did the father do this? He must have known his son and could have probably anticipated what was going to happen. Why did he give it to him? He gave it to him anyway. And this tells us something about the character of the father, I think. The father isn't really worried about the money, he has his eyes on something much deeper. And so he gives the inheritance to the boy, and we're told not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Distant country is code for Gentile territory. He was living among the Gentiles, blew every penny in extravagant, wasteful living until he's broke. Then a famine came, and to survive, he has to kind of subordinate himself to a rich Gentile landowner, like his father. Only this time a Gentile, and this time not as a, as a son, but as the guy who um, is slopping the hogs, right? Which also confirms this is among the Gentiles. And he was so hungry, he was actually kind of je jealous of how they were eaten. And the turning point in the story comes in verse 17. The NIV says he, he um, came to his senses, but literally in the Greek it says he came to himself. That's what it says. He arrived at a moment of self-possession, self-knowledge. He took ownership for his own life and what he had become and what he had done and the pain he caused his father. And as he, as he did this, when he finally took ownership, he started to experience this new desire for home. He even started to make it a, a plan. He would go back to his father, fall on his knees, admit his error, and say, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me just a servant or a slave. Now, I want us to notice the son is um, 
anticipating the response of the father. He thinks he knows this father and what he'll do. And he's kind of imagining this limit to the father's love. And his, his assumption is what he's done is unforgivable. Uh, unforgivable. He's broken his, his family bond for good. The best he could hope for is maybe to go back and be a slave or a hired hand. And there was good reason for this. You know, in those days, um, if a Jewish man squandered his family inheritance in this way, especially to, to the Gentiles, it meant that all of that wealth that was supposed to stay within the people of God had now transferred over to the Gentiles. So this was not just a family issue. This was a community issue. And if he tried to come home, the community would want to have a say in this. Most likely they would all gather. The son would petition for, to be reinstated. He would probably be denied. And then they, held, they would hold this ceremony um, called the kezezah. Um, it's the Hebrew word for cutting off. They would take this pot that sort of symbolized his life and they would break it right there in front of him. It's this symbolic way of saying, like you broke something when you left. You broke your ties with us and now you're too broken to be one of us. You can live here, but, but as a foreigner. And the son kind of figured that's what was waiting on him when he came back. But what he didn't know, what he couldn't know, because he didn't understand this, this father yet, was that at the gate of the home stood an old man, heartbroken and staring off into the horizon, longing for his son to come home. Just worried sick, like only a parent can be, about how his boy was surviving the famine, scared to death that he was already dead, wondering, you know, if, if he would ever see him again. And he stood there day after day, pacing back and forth, longing and hoping and worrying and staring up at the horizon, waiting on some sign of movement. So it's, it's really, I mean, it's deep and emotional there. I, I sometimes like to think about the, the first moment he saw him off in the distance. Like, I wonder how long it took him to, to recognize the kid. You know how you can tell some people from the way that they walk? And this, this father had seen this boy take his first steps. He had seen every step of his life, even as he was walking away. And, and now there's this thing moving on the horizon, a messenger maybe, a neighbor, a traveler. There's something about the way he walked that was familiar, and then, then it clicked for him. And his shoulders were down and his clothes were tattered, but he could see, that's my kid. And it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. As soon as the son was within reach, he takes off. He, he ran. The word actually, there is not the normal word for run. It's a technical term that's usually used in like an athletic sense. It's he raced, he sprinted, right? Middle Eastern patriarchs don't sprint, right? It's not done. You had to, one thing, you had to hitch up your, your tunic like you're in a dress, you know, and, and take off running, which was beneath him, right? It's embarrassing. He would show his legs. That wasn't done either. A slave could run, a boy, an athlete might run, but not a great father. But this one runs toward his broken boy. Scandalous. And you wonder if maybe he was worried that somebody else from the village would get there first. And then it would be Kezeza cutting off. They would abuse him and mistreat him. And it would be new wounds upon the old wounds he was already 
so worried about. He could lose them again. And so he ran to get there first, risking his own humiliation just to show compassion. And we're told that the boy had played this moment out in his head. He had a plan, right? He was probably expecting, you know, a slap in the face, a reprimand, something. He prepared this little speech, admitting he was wrong and begging for mercy and begging for just a place in the barn with the help. But before he could get a word off, the father's on him, right? And he tries to tell him his speech, and he just kissed him like he did when he was a boy. He embraces his kid, and he's sobbing for joy. Slips his ringer on his finger, ring on his finger. That's his way of saying, this is my son. He claims him again as his child. He's like, I, I thought I'd never see you again, man. I was so worried, but you're here, and you're okay. What else could I feel in this moment but overjoyed? It's this moment of profound tenderness, right, and love. We're told he, he dresses him up, you know, in fine clothes, kills the fatted calf, throws a party. And there's that sense in which the father has transgressed every boundary, every social barrier and limit of propriety to be reconciled with his son. He's like, My, you don't understand. I thought he was dead, and then he shows up alive. I thought he was lost, and he shows up found. Now, if the story ended there, it, it would not be, people would not be all that offended. I mean, he was kind of taking some liberties with their social customs here, but everybody loves a good, you know, lost son returns home story. But that's not the end. In fact, this is where things get really tense in the telling. Jesus had begun the story by saying, a man had two sons, and he tells about the one who went off, but the older son apparently stayed. He was a dutiful son who respected social norms. He was loyal, and he stayed at home and worked until he was in the field. And this all happened. He returns home, and he can hear it, the party from a long ways off, calls a servant, says, what's going on? And the servant said, well, your brother has returned. Your father killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating his return. And this, you know, this is a communal society. They, they, kind of, they kind of knew the comings and goings of the other families. They all knew when the younger son had left and why. They were no doubt now aware that he had returned. This, the party would have been a, a public event here. Plus, you know, in those days there were no, like, refrigerators, no no leftovers. Once you kill the fatted calf, you eat it down to the hooves. And so you call the neighbors in. Plus the father um, would have invited them to this party as a way of, of declaring, this is still my son, all right? No kezeza. Like, I, I want you to accept this because I've accepted this. So come, come rejoice with me because I'm rejoicing. By the way, rejoicing is a huge theme in Luke chapter 15 with all these parables. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, it says he joyfully put it on his shoulders. He, he called to his friends and said, come rejoice with me, and there was rejoicing in heaven. When, when the woman finds the lost coin, it says she rejoices. She turns to her friends and says, come and rejoice with me, and then there's rejoicing in heaven. And here the lost son returns to the father. The father rejoices, and the servants rejoice. Even the neighbors are rejoicing. Everyone's rejoicing except one character, the, this older brother. And he won't even go in the house. This is really tense 
for the listeners. He's the dutiful son. He represents everything you know, done right. You follow, he's not rebellious. He's not the son you gotta worry about. He does, have, he does his business. He stays close to home. And now he's causing a problem. In the ancient world, in these parties, everyone would have a role to play. And the older brother had a really important one, actually. The father would be seated at the party with the other heads of families, the patriarchs, you know, telling jokes and whatever, smoking and drinking, whatever they do. And the older brother would kind of run the party. He was the, the, the chief greeter and, and host. It, he would work the room and make sure everybody's drink was full. And it was hospitality. That was his role. And it was a responsibility that was taken very seriously. When they, when they did this, they were telling their neighbors, you're so important to us that like my number one son, who kind of doesn't serve anybody except me, he will serve you. But if the older brother isn't there, the father has to do it, which is another humiliation. And then to add insult on top of that, the brother persists. He won't come in. And so the father has to actually leave the party and go to find him and kind of plead with him, it says, to, to come in. The, the listeners would have grimaced at this. It was, it was hard to imagine. When the prodigal had left, it was kind of a private humiliation. I mean, it became public, but he did it in private. The older brother here, he's shaming his father in front of the whole community at this party. He's deliberately exposing his father to humiliation where everyone could see it. The father comes to him and begs him. He's like, come into the party. And the text says, but he answered his father, look. And then he launches in. That one word is loaded. It's, um, it's a disrespectful way to greet his father. He should have said, father, forgive me. And then I, but I have beef with this whole situation. To omit the title of father um, signals insult. I mean, even the, even the younger son, the prodigal, when he came to ask for his inheritance, began it with the proper father. So he's, he's full of resentment and grievance here. And it's warping his character and his relationships resentment, grievance, you guys, these are powerful forces in the world. And it's weird because they're mostly internal. Nobody can make you feel these things. We do this to ourselves. And resentment and grievance can just eat us away from the inside. There's an old story I heard long ago about um, open-range ranchers um, who, you know, back in the West before they divided up all the land. They would take their cattle out there and wolves were one of the biggest dangers to the cattle and they were notoriously difficult to trap. There were a ton of them. And so one of the things they would do is take a caribou rib bone, like they're really long and skinny bones. And they would sharpen both ends and then boil them in oil to soften them up until it was really soft. And then they would coil it up tight and then coat it in lard and set it out in the winter and it would freeze. Um, and then they would leave these things all over for the wolves. The wolves, if they found one, they just, just wolf it down, the whole, whole thing, without even chewing. And then it would warm up, and that, that bone would straighten out inside the stomach, and the wolf would die with a rib bone sticking out either side of their belly. It's a really gruesome way to kill them. This is, this is what resentment and grievance 
does to us. We swallow them whole and they just, you know, stab us from the inside until we're gone. And once we swallow them, it's too late. You know, things like this, resentment, grievance, they're, I mean, everybody feels them. They're meant to be a signal for us to look deep inside, like a symptom. Oh, something's wrong. I'm feeling really resentful here. And we, then we take some time and examine ourselves and suss it out. It's not what the older brother does. All these years I've been slaving for you, he says. I've never disobeyed you. You never gave me so much as a goat I could celebrate with my friends. Um, it's interesting. He, he likens, did you see that? He likens his role to that of a slave. He's not a slave. And it's ironically what the prodigal had, had said he would come home and be as a slave. Notice also he says, when, the, when that son of yours, he, he won't even call him my brother. He's disowning him in his language. He squandered your property with prostitutes. The text doesn't say anything about prostitutes. He's just dreaming that up. He's imagining that. This is resentment and grievance. You know, you just, nobody is having more fun in their life than our enemies, right? We just imagine they're, what they're doing. It just, the worst of it exists in our imagination. And really, when, when they're done telling the story, when he's done telling the story, the, the older brother has made the same mistake as the prodigal. He's renounced his responsibilities in the family. He's humiliated, insulting his father. He has placed himself outside the family. He's lost. And, and the father says, my son, and this is kind of the pinnacle of the story, this phrase, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. This, this brother of yours, he goes right out that statement, by the way. This brother of yours, don't try to act like he's not. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where the story ends. He just ends it with this dutiful son stuck on the outside which is kind of a bone in the throat of the listeners. Remember, he's telling the story in response to this question, why do you always eat with the tax collectors and sinners and the prostitutes and the losers and the drunkards and the people we have, capital E, excluded on purpose? Why why you do this? And so he tells these three stories in which there's, you know, these prodigal sons and then these massive reversals. The prodigal, um, he's the first reversal. He takes his inheritance and, and leaves, and you kind of expect him to go live in, in luxury, but he wastes it, and he ends up in poverty. So there's this reversal. And then he comes home expecting to have to be a slave, but he's not. He's welcomed, reinstated as a son, and it's, it's this uh, another reversal. And then you have the older brother. You know, when the dutiful son returns, you expect him to keep doing his duty, take his rightful place at the right hand of the father, run the feast, rejoice with the family, but instead he throws a, a tantrum. There's this reversal. And then the father, 
debases himself again, imploring the older son to join the party. But that, that's not the reversal. He doesn't come back. The, re, the reversal is, the father says, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. And then the story ends with this reversal. The dutiful son's on the outside, and the prodigal's on the inside. And we never really know how he responds. And this was, this was a bone in the throat of the Pharisees who kind of knew, this is a familiar story, archetypal story. They knew these characters. There was a way it was supposed to end. It was ending all wrong. The prodigal son should have been excluded for sending that fortune to the Gentiles. But Jesus says, no, he's included because of the father's love and, and forgiveness and grace. The dutiful son should have been included because of his loyalty to the family. But Jesus says, no, he's excluded. And this is the reversal. But not by the father. It's really, I think, the most important detail in the whole story. He was excluded by himself. This is a self-imposed exile. The father hasn't exiled anybody. He didn't punish or exclude or exile any of his children. That's not what this father is like. The father just gives, just pours out his own life and love to his children. He welcomes both of them home with this kind of no-strings-attached, unconditional love and hospitality, even in the midst of their bad behavior. That's who the Father is, according to Jesus. The one who is excluded has excluded himself because of his own resentment and grievance. The story is sometimes used as a, a way to say, you know, the Jewish people are the older brothers, the Christians are the prodigal sons. I think that completely misses the point. Because I think the point is all of us are prodigal sons and daughters who stray and squander and have these divided loyalties. And all of us are dutiful sons and daughters who secretly wish that we could be prodigals. That's what he wants. And so he's filled with resentment and anger. We all have these kind of split identities. And I think at some point we have to kind of come to the realization that we resent the prodigals, at least in part because they activate these disavowed parts of ourselves, these desires that we can't even admit to ourselves. This story, in, in the end, it, um, isn't just about our relationship to God. Um, it's also, I mean, it is, but it's also about our relationship to each other. And it's mostly, I think, about our relationship to ourself, especially those disavowed aspects of our lives, the part of our own identity that we keep outside and try to ignore, the part that, both the part that wanders far from home um, and squanders the blessings of God, but is ultimately forgiven 
and the part of us that just like hates that part of ourselves and can't even handle the forgiveness of it. We despise it so much. And then, then that struggles with resentment and grievance. You know, Bonhoeffer had this line. He, he said, we only despise in others what we despise in ourselves. And man, I think about that all the time. As soon as I feel, you know, grievance and start to despise somebody, I think, okay, so this is a mirror. Why, why is this activating me? I mean, I don't do anything about it, but that's what I tell myself. <laughs> Sometimes when I have strength, right? I do. It shows us the disavowed aspects of our own lives, especially when it doesn't seem to bother them. That's when it really gets to me. They're jacking up and they're like, yeah, I'm just forgiven. I'm like, that's not cool. Like, I didn't do that. Right? But there are these pieces of life that activate this stuff in ourselves. The part of us that wanders and is forgiven, but the part of us that wants to wander and didn't even. And then we struggle because we despise in others what we despise in ourselves. And so when our resentment is, is pointed at others, it's mostly about us. And sometimes we even find ourselves resenting God for this scandalous, you know, love and grace and forgiveness. That we can hardly even bring ourselves to accept because of our struggles with self-hatred. And so it's kind of annoying when other people do. You know, God's love is so present, right? It's everywhere and always. It's like God can't love you more than God loves you because God just loves you completely. And it's a lot. And sometimes we're the older brother who, it's too much. I can't let God love me. I don't even love myself. And so we keep ourselves outside, outside the camp. And the scandal of the story is that God doesn't seem to care all that much about the prodigal, you know, sinful, whatever, breaking this norm and that. He loves the prodigal. He loves the dutiful son. And the invitation is the same to both. I am always with you, and everything I have is yours. It's this statement of the ultimate unconditional love of God. And, and the choice is really ours. My um, spirit, uh, spiritual director for a long, long time, Father Adam, he's a monk at Conception Abbey. At some point, he would slip this into our conversations, and it used to just tick me off because I was on retreat, and I didn't want to think about this. But he would say, when I'm all angsty about whatever, he'd be like, you have the exact relationship with God that you want. Like, you are the limiting reagent in this little reaction, not God. It was so annoying. And, and, and right. God just wants us to be part of the family. He doesn't need us to be non-prodigal. The only ones who get excluded from this have excluded themselves. And so the invitation, what it leaves us with is just, man, you got to work at reconciliation. You have to be reconciled to God, to yourself, to each other, and, and to those parts of yourself that, that 
you don't want to see. Your whole life is built to keep you from ever seeing. And um, I think that's the hardest part. But it's a good story, even if it's a little bit annoying, right? Let's pray. And just for a moment, I invite you to draw to mind um, those who annoy you. Those places of grievance, resentment. I mean, we all have them. And just maybe commit here in this season of Lent to not fostering and feeding the, the grievance and resentment, but maybe try to see them as a mirror. What is this pointing me to in myself? And then maybe draw to mind the, the part of yourselves that, are, that feel prodigal, feel like a, they're outside the bounds of the family of God. And the way those things make us suffer. And maybe think about that father who looks clear to the horizon and knows your walk and wants to run to meet you. In the end, as much as anything, this story teaches us to trust that God has us and has our kids and our neighbors and the people we worry so much about. And this God loves us and there's nothing that can change that or separate us from that. And our story can be a horrible tragedy and we are still God's. He is still our Father. Oh God, we think about this story in light of this question about why you, why you share meals with all the messed up people and we just realize maybe we're the messed up people. And it's hard to admit to ourselves and we're pretty good at hiding it, but we, we just, we need you so much. And we're grateful for your love and I pray that redemption would be a place where all ragamuffins can always come and know they're, they're part of this family. We're part of this family. Amen. I invite you to stand, please. And we're going to receive communion. The way that we do this, we just come forward row by row. The ushers release us, and you'll be offered the, the pack of bread and juice, and, and they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember or respond however you want. The reason we do this is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks for it and broke it and passed it around to his guys and said, um, this is my body broken for you. Um, do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. Passed it around. They all drank from it. He said, this, this cup is um, a new covenant in my blood. It's a new deal.
between humanity and God, this new deal Jesus is describing in the story, where it's just like, come home, come home. And he said, take, take my life, my body, my life into your life and, and be made out of this stuff and then go out and live your lives and be salt and light. And he said, every time we get together, do this. And so that's, that's why we do this. And we invite um, everyone, no conditions, to the table, everyone to partake in this feast. Um, so if you would join me and let's pray a blessing on it. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. May we see ourselves at the banquet with the Father, feasting and joyful. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?